Hi, I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, a monthly podcast devoted to all things horror. Well, horror and film at least. And horror adjacent. Horror adjacent. Yeah. With a little bit of glitter thrown in. There's a lot of laser-guided karma in this movie. Yeah, because you can't do shit like that and not get some sort of comeuppance. They're uh, big business and big politics, right? Freiburg was big dance, but things are going to (laughs) change. Big dance. (laughs) I think I turned off Tales of Halloween because I was already sick of just, like, trash and... (laughs) How very dare you? (laughs) I am a motherfucking Halloween enigma. I don't even know what to say. You don't have to make that vomity sound because all the children vomiting those snakes and scorpions and spiders will do it for you. <laughs> Motherfucker. From classics to new favorites to camp, no film is safe from this section and laughs. Check out the Film Flamers wherever you get your podcasts. Sweet dreams. Relic listeners, so this is not the episode on the Lost Dutchman's Mind. That is hopefully next week. What we're doing today instead is a little bit of a special, a Thanksgiving special, though more about uh, just the spirit of food and togetherness. So in doing that, I wanted to do uh, a special that covers food mysteries. I was hoping for like lost recipes, something like that. But I ended up discovering uh, kind of a treasure trove of another kind. There is a, a pantry, if you will. There are a lot of things in the food world that are mysterious that we take for granted and that we don't really think about. And I picked up a lot of those threads and I came to some interesting topics. Um, but I'm not alone in doing that. This is too much to eat by myself in one sitting. And like any uh, big feast, you need a couple of guests. Well, I have one guest, uh, and that is Kate from Ignorance is Bliss podcast. Kate, hey, welcome to our dinner table. Thank you so much. Are these food are these food metaphors doing anything for you? I am starving. Perfect. That's exactly where I want you to be. Kate, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Sure. I am a former forensic psychologist and crisis clinician, which means that I pretty much got to see people at all points in the things are going off the rails spectrum. And so I know how the system works. And that's sort of the basis of my podcast. Although my most recent episode was about teaching college and I've done another about Russian prison tattoos. So it's really a grab bag fascinating stuff uh especially russian prison tattoo culture but that's a whole other it's a whole other kettle of fish um well i thank you for coming on the show uh, i know we've talked about doing this for a while now so i'm I, and it was just so funny that you just recommended to me on twitter and i was like you know it's thanksgiving and i really just don't have the time right now to do the next episode on schedule so this is perfect on that note kate Tell me, before we get into doing the episode, which is, again, it's going to be very bite-sized little, uh, I guess, kind of a tapas um, on food mysteries and uh, some of them unsolved. We're going to try to solve most of them today. And I think most of them are solvable, which is pretty cool and different. Um, But on that topic, Kate, what is your go-to dish, aside from turkey, on Thanksgiving? (laughs) Well... 
I am from upstate New York, which there's pockets that are, I, I don't want to say white trash, but I totally am. Like, it's fine. I, We're all friends here. And I mean, we just, I, I have the relatives with more cars in the yard than dogs and two trailers hitched together. <laughs> That is what I come from, and I totally wish I was joking. Like, my uncle raised trick pigeons, which is a whole other episode itself. So my go-to dish is what my grandmother sort of fancily called ambrosia, and it's ah, yes. a big can of mixed fruits, and it has to be canned. There's no fresh food involved in my life, and a, a plastic bin of sour cream and you mix those together and that's ambrosia it sounds disgusting and it's amazing it's a southern thing as well isn't it right i never i didn't leave new york state until i was so interesting and the reason why i bring that up is because my mom my mom comes from pennsylvania and pennsylvania dutch background And a lot, there's a lot of Southern influence in that part of the state because it's not really near the South, but it, it, there's a lot of connections there. And she would talk about um, the more Southern parts of her family, because um, I think we've got an aunt who lives in Georgia making ambrosia, which I saw at some sort of gathering at one point, and it looked like the most disgusting thing in the world. And you put it in your mouth and you're like, wait, this is the most delicious thing in the world. And nobody else in my family will eat it. Which is even better. And I've had it with marshmallows in it as well. So it sounds like there can be variants on it, from what I understand. I think people can use like actual real foods when they make it. <laughs> and also things not in a can. Um, great. So I also, my family comes from New York um, and more on my dad's side. So they're Italian. And one of the staples of the Thanksgiving dinner table is manicotti, which I know. <sighs> Someone out there is going to correct me on the pronunciation. Look, Italians don't know how to speak Italian, and it's all regional. So some people say manicot, some people say manicotti, some people, you know, whatever. But what it is, is it's a little like lasagna. It's like kind of a noodle, like a pocket full of, and it's so thin and so tender, and it's full of ricotta cheese that has other herbs in it. And then sauce on top. And it's the most simple thing in the world. But it's just like a cheese pocket of like, just almost like a mini lasagna. It's amazing. It's little spoonfuls of happiness. Yes, I it's li- Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, I, I love it so much. Well, I just love cheese and carbs. And that's all the all the Italians eat. And so it's perfect for me. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm not, we're not doing a traditional Thanksgiving this year for many reasons. So sadly, that's not going to be on our Thanksgiving table, but um, it is one of the staples that I associate with Thanksgiving aside from Turkey. But speaking of uh, appetizers and various courses, what dish are you serving? What tasty, tantalizing, well-seasoned mystery are you giving us first, Kate? Well, I'm going to, as my sort of, bridge to my topics i want to let you know you know if you want to come join me i will make manicot and put it on the table oh my gosh i love you i can't keep that in mind uh we are going to be in it's unfortunately we have a very tight schedule we are going to be in massachusetts where my sister is in malden but we're actually going to be in boston at a a hotel we're doing a hotel for thanksgiving which sounds very weird but there's like a restaurant there and then we're going to um 
go to uh, a MFA exhibit on Winnie the Pooh the day after. So it's all very cute. We will be in that area, though. So I, I feel yeah, bad. Malden is Malden. I used to work in Malden. Oh, really? Huh. Uh, it's an easy. It's it's a 20 minutes away. So, you know, if you get tired of family, you come Absolutely. here. I can throw it together pretty quick. We'll be good. But and when I say here, I mean Salem. And everybody knows that Salem is where the witch thing happened, right? Like that's everybody's immediate knee-jerk response. Oh, Salem mm-hmm. witch hysteria. For, for one, it didn't happen here. I just, I, I need that to be historically accurate. It bothers me. I feel bad. It's, it didn't happen here. It happened two towns over in what is now Danvers. And they were Salem village and we were Salem town and Salem village lost its mind. And a couple people were imprisoned in Salem Town. And it turns out, we just discovered in 2015, that they were hanged just over the border into Salem, what is now Salem. So technically they were hanged here. But, I mean, you're talking a matter of feet over the town line. So there's that. But what I wanted to talk about is sort of the first issue when we talked about food things or whatever is that there isn't there are nobody really knows what triggered this whole witch hysteria and i think we've kind of boiled it down to mostly like racism and white privilege which is kind of to blame for most things ever historically i think but in this case you know all of the accusers were well off and from prominent families and all of the accused were in some way less powerful they were disenfranchised in some way um can you give us the base notes version of what the more the most common like if i were like in in history class or as a kid what is like the first instance of this is what we thought started it the common misconception rather well, the common misconception, uh, I think the common conception, it may be correct, I don't, I'm not sure, is that there was a black uh, indentured servant, slightly different from slave, but only in words, named Tichuba. And during the New, the New England winters, which were harsh and miserable, especially that year, she was stuck inside. She was the servant to a minister's family, and he had his daughter, and a couple of her friends and cousins would come over. They would listen to stories by Tichuba. And it freaked them out. And so they started having bad dreams. One of them may have started having epileptic fits, which led to accusations of witchcraft because that was sort of, you know, it's the easiest thing to point at someone and say, this is the problem. Yeah. You know, witchcraft rather than, say, kids misbehaving. And Tichuba was accused of witchcraft and she very quickly said, yes, you're right. It's witchcraft. And she left and she was fine. And that was it. And pretty soon accusations started flying left, right and center. And a couple of hundred people were accused. And many said, yes, you're right. It's witchcraft. Because again, they got to walk away. Anyone who pled not guilty or refused to plead was then sent to trial with quotes around that if you were found guilty you were hanged that's interesting that i think we forget that the people who kind of admitted to it actually got the best outcome they still lost all of their things which is one of the reasons why i believe there was a big socioeconomic component but they didn't die 
they didn't die, but all of your things were taken away and those people who already had stuff got more stuff. So it, it, yeah, and it's a tragedy and um, I'd encourage everyone to look up. It, it's, it's a very big topic. There are a whole podcast on the Salem witch trials, but where does, where does the food come into play? Cause this so, is what's interesting. It, it is in 1976. A woman whose last name I'm going to mispronounce, but it's okay because her first name is spelled wrong anyway. So her name is Linda Caporale. Sorry, Linda. First name spelled L-I-N-N-D-A. So I'm allowed to mispronounce her last name because of that. Like that's my that's my line. She came up with a theory that said that maybe these sort of visions, epileptic fits physical twitching feelings of bugs skittering along the skin maybe this was all all real maybe the girls weren't making stuff up and that all of these symptoms matched something called ergotism ergot e-r-g-o-t is a certain type of fungus that grows on a certain type of rye and if you consume too much of it 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 acts as a, a vasoconstrictor so uh, vaso meaning all of your veins constrict and so that can make your circulation get weird it can cause headaches although it's also there's a form of it called ergotamine that is still prescribed now for migraine and it also can help postpartum bleeding it can help bringing on uh it's not used anymore but it, it can help bring on labor so, like, there are legitimate uses for it, but if you're growing it in a field of rye and you're making bread of different sizes and consuming it without thinking about it, your dosage is going to get weird and you could end up with more side effects than effects. Mm-hmm. And especially children or people with ulcers or things like that are going to be more prone to absorbing this ergot. And so you can get ergotism, which is an illness and many of the symptoms match those which were reported by purported victims of witchcraft. Does it cause like outright hallucinations, like a psychotropic or that's what I'm not always clear on. Cause I've heard some people say, Oh, it's like dropping acid. And I've heard people saying it's like, you know, it's really just more symptomatic, like sensations. Well, What's the- yeah, it's, it's, I would get, I mean, nobody really fully knows um back in those days one of the problems with the witch hysteria is that the courts allowed something called spectral evidence which is you and i can sit here and say yeah there's an elephant in the corner and the court reporter would write that down you know the witness says there is an elephant in the corner and like that's considered evidence that's not just okay witness is crazy Oh, so like when people were saying, oh, I'm seeing like a ghost or I'm seeing a vision or, oh, she's like astral projecting and only I can see her in this courtroom. They were like, oh, yeah, that's admissible. She's that's totally seeing a ghost. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Totally believe it. So, that, so that's one thing. Like the upside of that is we know some of the things that were reported. The downside is people died because of that. Yeah. So it's a problem. But so we have these reports, but then any sort of hysteria it's easy to listen to the person next to you and say oh yeah i have that and i have you know something bigger and and it builds on itself um ergot is similar 
to some of the compounds that LSD has. Uh, but the way I understand it is that it's sort of comparable to now the differences between CBD, cannabinoid, and THC, which I tetrahydro, what I, pot. <laughs> right? And that pot has all of these symptoms, physical and Cheetos and you know, can be the dizziness or the chill. Or <laughs> when whatever. you say Cheetos, yeah. you mean the munchies, right? Uh, sometimes. I mean, I don't okay. know. Okay. I, I have my concerns about Cheetos. So, you know. <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> wow. So mis- mysterious foods. Right? This is so fascinating because I know that there there is another there is another famous unsolved mystery called the Pont Saint Esprit poisoning, which took place in the 50s, which had a very like almost even more dramatic uh, hysteria component to it, like the Salem Witch Trials, where people were like hallucinating and just like this whole town was going crazy. Like the whole town was tripping, essentially. and uh, ergot was also blamed on it because much like you know small french villages and much like colonial villages in america you eat a lot of bread because there's really not that much else really right white carbs and cheese man that's <laughs> i'm all for it. it all comes back to that okay do, do you have and any so, fi- sorry did you have i was gonna say did you have any final thoughts on the ergot i, I think it's a tremendous steaming pile of bs I just, I think that if it was truly an ergot infestation, that more people would have been infected, especially babies, infants, and Mm. the elderly would have done more reporting instead of Mm. being reported. Yes, that's very true. You know, so I'm just, I'm skeptical about how carefully just, I mean, the well-off were the ones who were making the reports, and those are the ones most able to seek a doctor's care if they're feeling unwell right you know and so i'm I'm just i'm extremely skeptical but i do give a little bit of credence to the idea that you can have an ergot infestation without like there's different strains of this fungus and so maybe both were happening at the same time okay all right so we're going to go from bread to candy and I've got two, uh, both of my, so I've got three mysteries. They're all very short, but I'm going to do two back to back really quickly. Um, do you like Laffy Taffy or Jello or now and laters? And specifically, what's your opinion on banana flavors? I think banana flavors are perhaps to call back to old ye old time Satan. I think that they may be a tool of the devil. Okay, so you're pretty much like anti-banana flavor. Well, then you might not have wanted to eat bananas in the first half of the 20th century because there is a popular belief that the banana, the artificial, or what we call artificial banana flavor, was actually how bananas used to taste. And I say used to because the main cultivator of bananas was called, uh, was a strain of banana called, I believe it's the Gros Michel. It might be Gross Mitchell. I'm not sure. Someone mm-hmm. can correct me. But that was the main cultivar. That was the main banana back in its day. It was mostly exported in banana republics. And then something called Panama disease came about, 
which has existed for a while, but it essentially wiped out the whole gross Michelle varietal by the 1960s. So again, here we are with funguses like ergot. It completely, it's de- so it decimated them, but there was still, it did not affect another varietal called the Cavendish, which was discovered to be resistant. And this basically replaced the gross Michelle. Now what's interesting is this is the basically if you were to get a banana like out of the fridge or go down to the supermarket, you'd be eating a Cavendish, most likely. People say who are banana enthusiasts, and yes, those exist. And I would be very careful plugging that into a search engine. But <laughs> people say that the Cavendish actually has more complexity uh, and subtlety to it. So it's not as potent a flavor. It's less banana uh, of banana. Yes. A little bit. So what's interesting is that the compounds in the different bananas uh, are, which makes banana flavor is called uh, isoamyl acetate, which when you, uh, which is very easy to um, like isolate in a lab. It's an extract. It's a compound. It's known to by, by uh, chemists as banana ester because if you were to like take a bottle of this extract or compound and open it, you would be like, "Oh, that smells hella like bananas." So the common belief is that the old school bananas tasted uh, had more of this compound in it and tasted stronger. Um, now people debate that, like whether like there's more of a fl- like why did why is there why is this banana taste more banana y than like the other one? And is does this really taste like this artificial, you know? Because like artificial strawberry, like strawberry candy doesn't taste like a strawberry, right? It tastes entirely different. Same with grape. Um, the general consensus after much controversy is we've got b- uh banana farmers who I quote as is saying that um it's almost it, who, so here's the twist. Gras Michel bananas actually still do exist, just not in a, a mass produced way. So there are people who can still privately grow them. So they're not entirely extinct. Um, and people who have them say that it is, uh, it is, it's almost as if the Gras Michel tastes artificial because it has so much of this uh, compound in it. And it's quoted as like how grape flavored bubblegum differs from an actual grape. Um, when, and this farmer is quoted as saying, when I first tasted it, it actually, when I tasted this banana, the gross Michelle, it actually made me think of banana flavorings. So it's almost like a chicken and egg scenario. Like what does, is it the artificial banana that tastes like this original banana or is it the original banana that tastes like artificial? And it all comes down to that compound. And it's interesting. Because I don't have a problem so much with the banana flavor. Like, I'll eat a banana. That's no problem for me. It's just that the banana flavoring tastes plastic to me. Yep. That's actually what some, that was quoted in one of the articles I read is that people who tried the Gras Michel thinks that, think that it tastes plasticky. And that's just because of this, um, this ester or this chemical that's in it. It's, it had the word acetate in it, I believe, which is makes me think of nail polish. And I wonder if there's sort of a, a connection there. I know nothing about chemistry. So like that's like a really dumb like leap to make. But there is something kind of when I think of when I take like a like a Mike and Ike or a banana flavored candy, there is almost something kind of nail polishy about that aftertaste now my crazy yeah no no, no. Okay. it's that it's that plasticky sort of something yeah the, the artificial comes through far sooner than the banana does and far stronger yeah. 
And what's interesting is, like, I totally understand the different flavors of banana just because there are, you know, where I live, there's a fairly heavy population of people who have immigrated from different, especially Latino, Hispanic populations. Um, and, and we have a really good mix. So we have right next to each other, like a good Spanish restaurant, Brazilian and Mexican, which is just fantastic. Um, maybe I just really like food. I'm not whatever. Um, but so Damn. if you go into the grocery stores, you can find plantains next to bananas next to the mini bananas. Oh, yeah. And the banana, mini bananas are really fun to to purchase and give to kids because then they feel like giants and they'll eat them. which is great. <laughs> and but they taste different. The mini bananas taste like it's been concentrated. Interesting. And the plantains taste a little less banana-y. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, I follow. There's definitely different strains. Well, the second candy mystery I have is uh, you're familiar. Well, I think we're all here by all. I mean, here in you know the Western world in America, the um, poem "A Visit from Santa" uh, from Saint Nicholas, aka "Twas the Night Before Christmas," went all through the house. Uh, yep, by Clark Clement Moore. Uh, came out in 1823. Well, there is a certain line that when you're listening to it growing up, you don't really think much of about it. But when you actually stop, you're kind of like, wait, what is that? And that is visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. Well, I mean, I've been to see the Nutcracker. So I'm pretty exactly. sure sugar plums are little girls dressed in tutus, right? No, but that's the other thing. When you think of the sugar plum fairy and we just, you know, we assume that, oh, a sugar plum was like some kind of weird um, thing that like old timey thing where they took plums and then just coated them in sugar. I'm thinking like a candy apple, but a plum. Well, that's not actually the case, but it's kind of a little bit of a deep dive to figure out where what is a sugar plum because the answer is it's, it's pretty vague. So there are candy historians, which sounds like a fantastic mm-hmm. field, by the way, who thought that it came from, uh, you know, back in the day, there was a lot of smoking and salting and sugaring foods because that was a way to preserve them before refrigeration, right? So a lot of people thought it was sort of like um, the salted, uh, oh, I can't think of the name. I want to say it's shisho. It's a type of plum like a candied preserved plum that they have in japan and there's a chinese varietal and it's the most sour thing in the world but you know if you pair it with something it could be really good it's just like a dried plum that's what people often thought that this was referring to well as you go back to the as far as the 16th century in england uh people would refer to anything that was sweet and round as a sugar plum and it was kind of like a delightful thing a nebulous delightful thing the reason why it was so vague is because candy back then it wasn't really like oh this is a twix this is um a a peppermint this is a snickers bar it was just taking like fruits and nuts and just sugaring them or putting them in like a type of syrup and like bang like rolling them up and bang there you go for the most part the original sugar plum like the actual what people would refer to as sugar plums was they would take a seed or a nut and i think this came from arabia and a lot of traders brought it to like the western english-speaking world they would take a um a seed or a nut and they would uh layer it with um you know hot sugar liquid essentially and it would coat coat it 
and they would do this in different layers. So the more you did it, you would more kind of like kind of like paint layers. Um, this is if you've ever had a Jordan almond or even like an M M&M, and M. That's the same kind of principle. It's basically like a candy shell. Uh, but on the okay. inside is like a nut or a seed. And it was originally used as a digestive or medicinal. In fact, there's like records of arist- uh, English aristocrats eating it. Uh, it's These were called comfits, which is a French word. I don't know what it means. It didn't appear in the article. And now it's just dawning on me that I don't know what it means. But there you go. Um, candy. And, sure. and, yeah, candy, candy, right? Great. So, and, and you could use it at caraway, fennel, coriander, cardamom, almond, walnuts, ginger, cinnamon, aniseed, all of it could essentially be um, coated. In fact, when you leave like an Indian restaurant, in most cases, they have the aniseeds and some of them are coated. That basically qualifies as a sugar plum. Um, Ultimately, the more research is done. um, And by the time Clark Clement Moore wrote a visitation from Santa, the consensus was that the sugar plums he was referring to were basically what we are hard candy, like a jawbreaker or just like a ball of sugar with fruit flavoring in it. But back then they didn't really have fruit flavoring. They just took those balls of sugar like jawbreakers and they would coat them with different um, colors, uh, which were derived from spinach, saffron, and things maybe that you don't want to eat so much, which are uh, indigo or cochineal, which is first from a beetle, which is still used as red dye. So that mm-hmm. hasn't changed, which is no, interesting. I disagree. No, no. You disagree? <laughs> I disagree. Just ache. No. Oh, I'm, oh. Trying to, I'm trying to cut down on the beetles for... for oh, I thought you were going to say, oh, I thought you were going to be oh, like, wait a minute. That's not... <laughs> no, you're 100% right. Just... You wish I was wrong, though. Yeah, I, I really do. So yeah, it ultimately, in that long-winded explanation, a sugar plum... it. In this, in the context of the Nutcracker or uh, "Twas the Night Before Christmas," are basically just jawbreakers. That's what they called them. So it's kind of a, it's like when you find out what Turkish delight is, which I actually really love, real Turkish delight, and from the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, right. It's this nebulous thing that in our heads sounds so much more magical than it actually ultimately ends up being, but. You know, we've been eating, it's kind of the, the Shyamalan twist is we've been eating sugar plums most of our lives. If we like, if you eat candy or hard candy, you're basically eating sugar <laughs> plums all the time. It. You've already done it. It's an excellent so. twist. Yes. So back to you. Well, I have uh, this, there is a twist on this one. I think there's an herb that is referred to in ancient Greek and Persian writings called Silthium. And it turns out nobody has any idea what that is for real like we think we do we have some guesses here and there but they include it in recipes and like seasoning in, as a seasoning um and they also use it medicinally because why not and it was one of those sort of medicine things that treated everything if you let it like it treated uh, it works as an aphrodisiac. It worked to cr- treat headaches. It would help with certain GI problems. So kind of like uh, the ibu- the aspirin of its day. But cough, <laughs> sore throat, fever, indigestion, aches and pains, warts, and all other kinds of maladies. Like that's a that's a quote. <laughs> so from a from uh, Hippocrates. Okay. Just generally good source of knowledge. Uh, apparently not but oh. <laughs> you know what I, mean? I mean he may have but the thing is he didn't bother with the whole description of the actual plant okay and as far as we know now it's it's gone and it has been gone for probably a thousand years 
that we we have the, the last i don't know when exactly it was but the fifth or sixth century seventh century depends on basically how outdated their source was slowly this silphium thing started dropping out of recipes so based on the recipes what we understand is that it's a seasoning or herb that was more savory uh not salty so much but think fennel maybe okay um which i despise by the way i don't it it ranks right there with anise seed to me it just doesn't taste correct the italians like to use it a lot (laughs) I know, and that's because I, I mean I adore Italian food. It all comes in back to the Italians. All iterate, iterations, and if it is used l- with a light hand, I'm cool with it. I guess I think the main problem I have with it is that when people use leave whole untoasted anise seeds in sausages, I really hate that. Oh yeah, that's when I was talking about the Indian, like when in an Indian restaurant, when you go to leave, they have like instead of mints, they have the anise seeds. That's exactly. Like, just, do not touch makes, those. When you... It makes everything taste wrong for days to me. Like, it just doesn't, <laughs> uh, like, I don't mind it if it's toasted. I'll make my own sausage. And when okay. it's toasted, like, that's cool. But when it's not, I just, I spend the rest of the day thinking everything is wrong with the world. And, you know, it's, it's so this silphium, though, it sounds like a fennel is kind of similar, but generally it's a little bit lighter of a taste. And mm-hmm. it goes in, like, a lot of stuffings. Um, we're back to the carbs. It goes in a lot of carb dishes and that kind okay. of thing. And it sounds like that's what this would do. It would go well in soups and in similar. So the ancient Greeks had a Thanksgiving. You better believe that their stuffing would have silphium in it. Most likely. Okay. And now it's just gone. Like it's gone off the map. We don't know if it's extinct or if it was mislabeled because it's sort of drawn, but it's drawn sort of crappily to create my own adverb it, it's just not we don't know for sure whether it's a case of this thing has gone extinct which is certainly a possibility or whether this thing was m- mislabeled and maybe it really was fennel or some variation thereof um we also don't know if maybe it was a hybrid and the thing about hybrids is that they generally don't self-perpetuate very well so the first crop comes out really well the second crop is small and stunted and there is no third crop interesting and i'm so do- we're not sure it's i'm doing some re- as you're saying this i did i did plug it into google do you know there's another theory and i i'm only gonna bring this up because you haven't brought it up yet so please override me here but one of the theories on why it might have also disappeared was back to that many uses uh concept that you had started out with it was used uh for abortions and that, in fact, yeah, it might have been. Yeah, this was so- back when it was not so much a problem. This was yeah. pre Christianity days when abortion was just considered to be a, you know, another health thing. Yeah, exactly. You um, know, another thing that you do. And it also would help with women that had severe menstrual cramps. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know on that one. I mean, ergot was also an abortion drug, if we're going to oh, really? get back to that, because it would stimulate uterine contraction. Um, okay. If, if you do so at the earlier points of a pregnancy that can cause an abortion and so you know i thought about that but i don't think i mean they did there are other drugs in the world that do create abortion 
and those are still alive. So, like, I don't. I yeah. Think if, if you go, is, I wasn't like it over harvested hum, it. Humans being humans, if we go to deliberately eradicate all sources of a given plant, we fail miserably. But if we just sort of use it for our own purposes and we don't take care of it, then it's gone in a couple of generations. <laughs> that seems like it. Uh, <laughs> what, one of the so. I also saw it wasn't that it might not have been deliberately eradicated after like the rise of Christianity, but that it was, it was used up so much because it was so effective. But then again, that goes back to what you just said about if we try to eradicate something, we can't. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, that's my thought is that maybe it was a hybrid, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of two savory herbs and everybody liked it. And so let's overuse it and forget to replant it or try to replant it, but not really understand how hybrids work. Yeah. And ultimately end up wiping it off the face of the planet. <laughs> Hooray. Now, one, here's my, my Shyamalan twist for you. Okay. Is that there is a theory that the reason we even re- still care at all about Silphium is that this is where the heart symbol comes from. Oh. And I'm not sure that that's true. Because there's other theories that the, you know, when we draw a heart, like I heart you, uh-huh. that 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 is actually the shape of a woman's rear end. Oh. Because a heart symbol looks nothing like a heart. Right? To, you know, the human heart anatomically looks nothing like that symbol at all. Yeah. No. So. I've, I've seen a few. I've ripped out a few hearts in my day. And I would think. Them, so. Haven't we all? And yeah. so instead that heart like sort of looks like a woman's rear, a woman's rear end. That's the theory. It's and all bots. Everything it all is comes bots. back to the butt, you know, and we like big butts. We cannot lie. And so. That is the thesis. <laughs> you are the brothers can't deny. Yeah. But the thing about Silphium is that its seeds are per the, the crappy drawings of the day. The seeds are very heart shaped. Huh. And that maybe because this was also not only a in, inducing abortion, but prior to that, it was also considered an aphrodisiac. Oh my goodness! It all makes sense. It all comes back. So oh, wow, that is the theory. Now, if I can sort of jump the jump the line here, there is one other thing that I looked up. Okay, which has nothing to do with silphium, but. It has to so do with crazy. chocolate, which I, which I do love. So Okay, I'm here for it. The, I am going to be the, quiet this whole time. Just talk to me about chocolate. Well, it, it, it's the red velvet cake. Oh, yeah. Which we most often associate with the American South, although it's not necessarily. It's sort of Canada has a claim on it because those Canadians, man, they're, they're hardcore. And... There are different parts around the world. There's a, there's an area of the Indian subcontinent that claims mm-hmm. it. The Waldorf Astoria says they started it. So nobody's really sure where it came from. But it is a cake that resembles a simple chocolate cake. Except it's sort of denser. It's like a step between German chocolate cake and maybe a chocolate mousse cake. Okay. Sort of. And now we have to have this at our Thanksgiving spread. We have to have all of these. In fact, let's skip the turkey altogether. This is my Just vote. go for the red velvet cake? All of the cakes. All of the cakes. Let's do like a blind taste test. Okay. Uh, you know, chocolate cake, German chocolate. Like, I'm here for that. That is, I, I'm on board. But so the thing about red velvet is, first of all, the velvet part comes from the texture. That it's very smooth because it's made with cocoa rather than chocolate. So there's less sugar. 
mm-hmm. um, in the in the chocolatey happiness part specifically. Like there's still sugar in it. It's, it tastes like cake, but the texture is much smoother. It's less. There are fewer crumbs on the plate, and not just because you pick the plate up and lick it when you're done. Mm-hmm. And that's the velvet part. And then the red part is the coloring itself. It, it appears much more red, although when it was initially created, the common understanding is that it just was redder than chocolate cake. So because cocoa has a darker, redder appearance than chocolate, it, it therefore just appeared redder by contrast. And then over time, people started using food colorings and other things, which I'll chat about in a moment, about to make it actually appear red and poof now we have like a christmas or or a bright red you know yeah it was originally more like a rusty maybe yeah just sort of another like a brownish red like a you know red compared to the light flat brown tree bark brown of a chocolate cake okay this was a darker mahogany got it and Especially because it was almost always served only with like a a fairly bright white frosting, which would make the color pop more. Oh, is it that that roux or cream cheese frosting that's amazing? Yeah, uh, yeah, and cream cheese or um, yeah, you said you said roux. There's another ermine icing. Oh yeah. Called. And all of those are just sort of fairly stark white, although they can go, they can move into like an ivory if you're getting fancy, wedding dressy, whatever. But the moral is it made the cake appear even redder. Whereas if you're putting chocolate frosting on a chocolate cake, now you've just got different colors of tree bark and it's fine. I'll still eat all of it happily. No problem. Um, and so there's theories that devil's food cake was created around the same time, but that those who were particularly, I'm going to say devout because I want to remain respectful, but unclench. Okay. People would not eat devil's food cake. It was called devil's devil food in it? because it was, yeah, it was called okay. devil's food because it was so rich. It was considered sinful. And then other people went, oh, sinful. Oh no, I won't eat it. So they started calling it red velvet instead. And people were like, oh yeah, give me some uh, of that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> you see what I mean? And then over time, there were more and more efforts to differentiate it and, and delineate it. And now I've seen recipes for red velvet cake that literally call for an entire thing. Uh, I'm showing you with my hand and you can't see, but I don't, I don't know the, the amount, but the little tiny food coloring where you do like two drops and your fingers are stained for months. Uh-huh. They're calling for a whole thing. No red food coloring like in it. order to to do get with out. A, it's too much, you know. Get out of my kitchen. I mean, for for the purposes of just coloring something, like close your eyes and eat, and you're happy. But that's some of the recipes, like that extreme amount of red. And one of my favorite bits is that during World War II, there were all these food shortages, especially for things like you don't need food coloring, shut up and eat. Mm-hmm. And so cooks still felt the need to make their red velvet cake even redder so they used beets yes which makes so much more sense and it's more natural and will that's that's what i'm thinking 
like that will affect the flavor because beets are they have kind of an earthy sweetness to them which that and plus chocolate that's really appealing to me i mean i also like a lot of weird food but that flavor profile that will that does separate it from regular chocolate cake because you've got the beet juice in it which is going to make it taste different right but that actually that comes later like that oh. comes the, the red velvet came first, and then this was as a result of food restrictions Interesting. during the war. I think, like that's my understanding okay. of it. And plus, beets are a more magenta. Like it seems to me like that would be purple cake. Yeah, that's you know, very or pink true. velvet, something like that. Although that's now we're talking about porn names. Like I don't want to go there. <laughs> pink velvet coming to the stage. Pink right? velvet. I'm saying maybe a drag name. That's fine with me too. Yeah, I'm on. Yeah. I'm on board. But. I think in general, like, I'm not sure that, and of course it depends on how they extract it and how much beet juice they use, but I'm not sure that would make it red. Yeah. It's still my favorite cake though, but let's be real. It's kind of a vehicle just for the, whatever frosting it is. Cause that's what and really I don't care what the... kind of frosting it is. They're geniuses every time like that, that stuff, whether it is sort of it. a simple buttercream or like the, the, the ermine frosting is this high intensity you're only allowed to add like four molecules of sugar at a time and you you know you beat it all day long and it's just amazing and that's part of why like the whole color profile is difficult to ascertain because i have to lick the plate <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a moot point um i love red velvet so much i this is a somewhat of a tangent I made a big like sheet cake of red velvet that I frosted and then it was for a a showing uh, like a party like you come over and watch a movie kind of deal for Star Wars The Last Jedi and in that movie there's a planet where it looks like a red velvet cake where it's like a white surface and then when they scratch it or they ride over it the salt or the sand uh, wipes away and it's just bright red underneath so i made a red velvet cake and put like one of the little uh, uh star fi- a wing y wing i'm not sure star wars fans are gonna really hate this episode but i put one of those little as like a cake topper over it and have like the trail of like red dust behind it on like the white frosting i thought it was pretty cool anyways come to my movie parties because i like to make thematic desserts i would really like to now yes yes please. Um, so my final mystery, which uh, is definitely the most bizarre one and probably the shorter one here, uh, I've titled it Women Don't Grow on Trees, and you're about to find out why. So first, I'm going to ask this question. Hey, Kate, do you like Thai food? I do. What about Thai food that could like you back? Doesn't it already? <laughs> so in... Thai Buddhist lore, there is a concept called the Narapan fruit. And the Narapan is a tree in Buddhist lore that was created and put in a magical forest called the Himifan. And it was planted there by the god Indra, who's also a Hindu. So this is Buddhist, but Indra is also uh, in Hinduism. He's the god of war and a sky god, uh, which doesn't he doesn't sound as scary as most gods of war. He's actually a pretty good dude, from what I understand. So in the, he put this tree in this forest because that was the forest where his wife, uh, a goddess, lived, and she was irresistible kind of like a red velvet but in goddess form 
she was beautiful she was the most beautiful goddess or one of the most beautiful goddesses i think parvati is widely considered the goddess of beauty but she she was she was up there so he put this she would be in this forest and when she would go out to gather fruits or do what goddesses do which i guess just like kind of frolic in general she would get attacked by hermits or yogis who lived in that forest who because they're men and have no concept of um consent would just you know run after her and she would get away because she's a goddess she's powerful but it's really annoying when you're trying to live your life and you keep keep getting attacked by a bunch of old I'm men trying to frolic and now I, I mean it's pretty much right the, the problem that women have in bars now like i'm just trying to frolic <laughs> she just had her headphones in and he'd be like hey hey goddess you should smile yeah. um but really uh, and it was a problem because these yogis are there ostensibly to become you know one with to reach nirvana and they're getting distracted by this pretty goddess and of course they're posing problems for her so indra created 12 narapan trees and the trees would bear fruit that would resemble women they would look like beautiful women and they would i don't it doesn't necessarily talk of them being animated like they would become creatures but they would be these fruits that looked like women and the men would become so in lust with them that they would either make love to them or eat them i'm not sure it's a lot of weird very freudian concepts same yeah (laughs) (laughs) to keep it pretty pg we'll just kind of be vague about that um and they would lose their powers as kind of a lesson and then they would go you know they would go back to becoming ascetic and they'd go on the proper path you know what have you so uh, according to so we're going to shift this to so in thailand there was uh Indra appointed a, a, a guardian of this uh, tree garden named Vesantara, and his family died, and the forest kind of steeped into legend. Now, that's where that would we would claim to end things there. When I was in high school or in college, I recall a kind of Unsolved Mysteries knockoff where I first heard the story where they'd claimed to have found the actual fruit. And there is a temple there, uh, Wat Ampawan, I'm going to pronounce. My Thai is non-existent. No, so I'm we're pretty sure you best. just nailed it. You're good. Okay, thanks. So it's it's near Bangkok. It's actually kind of close to the capital of Thailand. But there's a temple there. And on this program, they had the priests uh, open up this kind of very old, like old-looking wooden casket with uh, a lining of like silk. And inside is the thing i'm sending to you on twitter right now so you're going to click on that and you're going to tell me what you think about that um but for the benefit of the audience that this temple believes that they uh are on the property that is this magical forest and that they the priests will go into the because it's a big woods they'll go and then there's only 12 trees allegedly so you know there's a lot of trees in a forest hiding 12 among them is kind of you know it's kind of needle in a haystack but the priests know where they are and they'll go into the forest find the trees that bloom at like only 20 every 20 years and for like seven days or something very kind of magical like that and there are these fruits that look like women and now online there there was recently they showed some of these photos of what basically looked like green barbie dolls hanging from a tree 
which is kind of morbid and they're very look they're very fake looking but in this temple and what was shown on this per, this unsolved mysteries knockoff were the the things in this case which they say are dried Nerapon. and they, they look are, a little they're dried yes can you describe <laughs> them for me no um yeah <laughs> they are terrifying um they are okay i went to a an engineering school which are which was six to one male to female Mm -hmm. and so up there in the middle of the frozen north because it was on the canadian border Uh this is probably tremendously attractive (laughs) (laughs) but it, it looks to me like a sleeping mummified body wearing a pirate hat Yes, it looks very much like if you've seen a photos of the Atacama skeleton, which a lot of people think was an alien, Thinking Sideways did a whole debunk on that. It looks kind of like the Fiji mermaid, the Barnum, uh, P.T. Barnum, like creepy, like monkey uh, torso on a fish thing. It looks a little, it's very evocative of that. Like it almost looks like a fetus or like a mummified fetus or something, mm-hmm. which is what I think it might be. But I also wonder if it's... um iron like it was like a statue carving it looks yeah like a carving and with enough handling it gets that sheen to it although someone's choice to handle this as a worry stone makes me deeply concerned for their mental health yeah it and yeah so these pictures that we're talking about they're on this kind of velvet pillow uh with like flowers it's a red velvet pillow (laughs) oh it all comes back no but you're gonna turn me off to red velvet cake because now every time i eat a red velvet cake i'm gonna think of these like creepy like mummified looking things that they claim to be um remnants of the narapon fruit and i hate I hate things that are like, it's either a vegetable or it's animated. It's like be one or the other. Because initially I thought it was similar to like the dryads from Greek mythology, which are wood nymphs that would come alive. Or the uh, in Scandinavia, they have the hulda, which are these uh, beautiful uh, elf-like beings that lure men into forests, but they're dangerous. And the way you can tell they're uh, these magical creatures is because their backs look like hollow trees like rotten hollow trees like that's what that kind of reminded me of um but by and large the weird green barbie doll looking photos that you see online on like kind of weekly world-esque websites those have been pretty debunked as for these mummies well you can go see them in this temple which isn't far from bangkok and they're on display they've got like pins in them it's just, you know, I want someone to do testing on those creatures because that's the one thing that creeps me out. I don't think that there is a forest that grows fruit that looks suspiciously like women. And if you put that in front of me and did not tell me it was a fruit, me wanting to consume it would be the farthest thing on my mind. Um, like, I don't want to take a bite. I just there is no aspect of this thing that I want to chew on. Sorry. Yeah, and I thought like maybe there was some sort of like you eat it and it gives you immortality or powers or curses you, which it does sound like in the, there is some undercurrents of that in the legend of the the fruit uh, uh, taking away the mystic's powers uh, to you know set them straight again. But I, I don't say, know. It might set them straight again if they're having the kind of illusion that makes them think that this is a beautiful woman. <laughs> and well, these are dry. Then they take a bite then maybe they realize, oh, sorry, I have let my 
I have let my other brain think for me, and now it is time to go back to doing you know, the child pose. Yeah, some uh, asanas. Yeah, I, if I'm ever in Thailand, I might just have to, which I do want to go there, not just for the food, but for like a plethora of other reasons. It's a very cool country. Um, I definitely want to check these out. Um, but no, I don't think I'd be sampling near upon anytime soon. Anyways, I think that's, I'm full. I think that was a pretty big feast of mystery. Don't you agree? And, you know, not ending on the red velvet cake is an excellent idea because that might leave me hungry. But these, I'm like, no, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. This is, so there's always that one food at the table, like the, <laughs> like ours would be like the, the raw squid that wasn't even calamari. And just like, that's, that's, this is the raw squid of the, of the mystery buffet. But Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really hope you, you and your family have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, do you want to plug your show and tell us anything where we can find you on Twitter? Sure. We don't eat very much. We just talk about people. That's pretty much what we do. Perfect. Uh, if it involves human, human behavior, I may have already talked about it or it may be on my list. And I am at IWB podcast. Ignorance was bliss. Perfect. Well, I guess I will. We're going to be back to our normal schedule, hopefully next Wednesday with the story on the lost Dutchman's mine. But I might be still too full. So you stick to Twitter. You'll see you'll see updates on that when that's coming down. But I hope everyone out there, uh, whatever you celebrate, if it's with family, if it's with friends, if it's about being thankful, I hope it's a good one. Have a good night. Happy Thanksgiving. Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast, a podcast where I like to talk about all things strange and unusual, whether it's mysteries, historical crimes, or fairy tale origins. I hope you'll come along for the ride and join me as we delve into some spooky tales. Happy listening!